You're listening to the Living Truth Church Podcast, and we're so glad that you're here. If you would like to know more about our church, you can find us at livingtruthchurch.com, on Facebook at Living Truth Church, or on Instagram at LTC underscore Pace. We pray that God uses this teaching to impact your life. Well, good morning and welcome to Living Truth East Milton. If it's your first time here, we're glad you are checking us out uh, this morning. In your chairs, you should have gotten a couple of things. Number one is this lovely little bulletin. Uh, at the bottom, you'll see this perforated edge. It's our Connect card. Uh, if it's your first time here, if you want more information about the church, uh, if you have prayer requests, you want to join one of our small groups, uh, if you want to take a next step, maybe get baptized or get in one of our Connect classes, uh, I encourage you to fill that out. Either give it to me at the end of the service or drop it in the offering box back there and we'll get it that way as well. Uh, secondly, you also got one of these lovely blue cards. Alright, so we have about 125 chairs in here and you can see they're not full. So uh, we want to encourage you to take these out and start inviting people to Living Truth East Milton. We were getting over 1,000 to 1,500 views while we were online. Uh, now if you can be somebody watching the service for like 10 seconds, but obviously there was more people watching that are in this room today. So we want to encourage you to go out and invite. Let people know that we're back meeting again. I know some people are still kind of leery of gathering in groups and I get that. Um, but if you need more than one, we have plenty at the connect table. Miss Heidi, where's Miss Heidi? Miss Heidi would be glad to give you a whole stack of them if you feel like you can give them away. Um, now, if you can't, don't take that many because they do cost money and they're not cheap. So, but we want you to invite people to come to Living Truth East Milton. Um, the other two things is we will have kids church from zero to five years old starting next Sunday. Uh, kind of how that's going to work is kids and volunteers will be temperature checked when they arrive and when they leave just to give everybody peace of mind. That way if somebody goes home and said, you got my child sick or something like that, we can say, well, nobody had a temperature when they were here and when they left. So, um, and you can drop them off at your own uh, discretion. You know, if you don't feel comfortable dropping your kids off, you can still bring them into church. That's totally okay. Uh, and lastly, uh, Living Truth East Milton, officially the land that we were given was deeded to us this week, so it is officially ours. We, have future, we officially have a future home. Uh, we're still about two years out from ever clearing a tree with permitting and all that fun stuff that goes with it, because nothing is really ever free. But uh, if you'd like more information on where that is, what it's going to cost to get there and all that stuff, you can see me after the service, man, I'd love to tell you that. But... Uh, with all that being said, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 24 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. You can go ahead and turn there now or turn there on your phone, however it is you uh, get God's Word into your life. Uh, but if you if you've, haven't been tracking with us, we're going through as a church, we're reading through the Bible together as a church this year in our Word series. And uh, if you go to our website, you will find a reading plan you can download if you haven't already, and you can just jump right in. So that's uh, each week we'll be preaching and teaching from somewhere in the reading that week. And then during the week when you're in your small groups, you'll get to dive into some of those other texts a little bit deeper that we don't, we don't have time to talk about on a Sunday morning. Uh, and I would encourage you to do that because small groups is where life happens at Living Truth Church. That's where biblical community happens. That's where we love on one another, care for one another, and just kind of do life together. Uh, but before we, we dive too far in, I'd like to take this time and just, just go to the Lord real quick. Um, 
Heavenly Father, again, we praise you for this day. We thank you that we have a place to worship you, uh, that we can do it free of persecution this morning, Lord. And I just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be, even in this gym, Lord, that you would uh, speak to every heart right where they're at. God, it would be less of me and more of you, Lord, and that uh, you would make up for all my uh, inability, Father God, and that people would hear your word loudly and clearly and respond. And we just praise you, Son, Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of this message this morning is called The Divided Land, but it easily could have just been labeled part two uh, to, to be with last week being part one. You know, last week we really talked about in light of everything that's going on and just as being followers of Christ in general, that we should respond to our neighbors in love. We should have a loving response to everybody that we encounter with, uh, encounter in our daily lives. You know, this week as we dive into 1 Kings chapter 12, We're going to take it a next step further. So we know we are to to love our neighbors, but we're going to look at exactly how we can apply that this week. What does that look like for us to love our neighbors? And we're going to do that by looking at 1 Kings chapter 12. So as we work through the Bible, we're working through the story of Scripture. We're working through, you know, the God's redemptive plan for humanity, how we got to the Messiah, Jesus, and then where we go from there. So in, in, this, part of the, in this, this part of our journey through that story, we're going to talk about this morning with a guy, his name is King Rehoboam, and I have no idea if I'm saying that name right, we're just going to roll with it, and you guys can check me later, and if you think you can say it better, I would love to hear you say it. So, King Rehoboam is the great-grandson of King David, the son of Solomon, and he is now going to be king over Israel. He is going to be the last king over united Israel. And you can see why that's a big deal as we move through the message this morning. But when he took over leadership of Israel, he was about 40 years old, relatively a young man, especially in church world. Uh, 40 is considered very young. Uh, and many of you would consider that to be young as well. But, you know, he grew up as Solomon's son. So he grew up in a very wealthy, luxurious lifestyle, no doubt. Solomon was one of the richest guys, or the richest guy of his time, the most powerful guy, wisest guy. Even by today's standards, it would have been phenomenal. So it, it's very likely that, so, that, that Rehoboam grew up without ever wanting anything, always having everything he needed, always having the coolest toys, the coolest gadgets, the latest iPhone. He had all those things, and, and he never really wanted for anything. So the way he viewed life was kind of skewed compared to the way the people that were under him viewed life and how things should go. Another thing that's important for us to note before we get into the text is that up to this point, we don't get any indication that Rehoboam follows God, that he believes in God's word, that he's remotely interesting in doing what God has called him to do as king of Israel. So that being said, if you would, read with me as we read verses 1 through 5 in chapter 12. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. 
you got to read that a lot of times to kind of understand what's going on because it's very wordy. Uh, so basically the people of Israel, the majority of the, the people of Israel, which have been thousands of people, maybe even close to a million people, had gathered in Shechem to basically confirm Rehoboam as king. Now it was really just a formality at this point. I don't really think there was much they could do to keep him from being king. I think in theory they could have, but really he was going to be king and this is just a formality at this point. Uh, and hearing about this confirmation, Jeroboam, who had served under Rehoboam's father Solomon, returns from exile in Egypt. So if, if you've been doing the reading, just to refresh our memory, back in 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, Jeroboam was basically a common man that had rose through the ranks under King Solomon. He, uh, he was this common guy that, that caught King Solomon's eye and he said, this dude will be very beneficial in my kingdom. And Solomon took him and put him over all the workforce in his kingdom. So Jeroboam was essentially a man of the people. He was somebody that the people respected because he had rose up just as a common person and he was put in a place of leadership in the kingdom of Israel. But then something happened. In 1 Kings chapter 11, a prophet of the Lord came to Jeroboam and he said, Look, Solomon has sinned. Solomon has, has disobeyed me. He's turned away from me. And because of that, I'm going to divide the nation of Israel. I'm not going to take it from him. I'm going to take it from his son. But I'm not going to take the whole thing. I'm going to leave him a little bit of remnant over here. But I'm, what I am going to take from him, I'm going to give it to you. So somehow, it doesn't really tell us how, but Solomon found out and he was like, I'm going to kill this guy so it doesn't happen. So Jeroboam flees to Egypt. That's why he had been hiding out in Egypt until Solomon had died. So this, this removal, or, or this, you know, really God is, is fulfilling his promise that he made to Solomon by removing the kingdom from Rehoboam and giving it to Jeroboam. So when the people heard that Jeroboam had returned, you know, he was a man of the people. People uh, uh, respected him way more than they did the king. So they, they call him to them, and they're basically going to make him their mouthpiece to go and speak to the king. Hoping that the king will hear him and, and, and acknowledge what they're saying. So at some point during the reign of Solomon... Solomon departed from the ways of God and started to grossly mistreat his people. He, he forced in higher taxes, forced labor. So a people of Israel that had been brought to the promised land to live in freedom from oppression are now being, for, being, being are experiencing injustice and oppression by the king that is supposed to keep them free. See, in, injustice, oppression, inequality, all these things are not new to man. Just because we see these things come to light in our generation right now, it's not some new thing. You know, even Solomon himself writes in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new we experience today that has not been around since the fall of man. The mistreatment of people has been around the hatred for our fellow man has been around. You know, hatred towards those who are fellow image bearers of God. None of that is new. The quest for power and control, wealth and fame, pride and arrogance, they've been around since the fall of Adam and Eve. Since sin entered the world. So since the people had been carrying this heavy yoke or bearing the heavy burdens of the king 
uh, King Solomon had placed on them, they were sending Jeroboam to be their mouthpiece to the king and plead their case and hoping and praying that he would relent and, and, and give them a lighter burden to carry so that maybe they could once again live in freedom like God intended them to live in the promised land. So they, they take this request to the king. He tells them to come back in three days. And as we move through the text in verse 6, we see that the first thing Rehoboam does, he goes and seeks the counsel of, it just says, the old men. We don't really get much, much more than that. We don't know how old, older than him. I don't know what he's qualifying as old, but he goes and seeks the old men. So at first, it looks like Rehoboam's on the right track. I mean, he's using some wisdom, going to go talk to some guys that had been there, done that. Because more than likely, these old men had served under Solomon in some capacity. They had probably seen the good side of Solomon, the bad side of Solomon. And he's like, I'm going to go ask these guys what they think I should do, how, they, how I should respond to the people. You know, even, even, even Solomon, Rehoboam's father, in Proverbs 20, verse 29 talks about the, the, their wisdom that it, there is in going to talking to old men. He says, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair or their wisdom. So even Solomon, Rehoboam's father, knew there was wisdom in going and talk to the older generations about making decisions. So we see that Rehoboam's kind of on the right track. And the old men, they say, look, this is what you should do. You should speak Kindly, you should use good words or you should extend grace to the people. Because in all reality, it was kind of a bold move for the people to, to send this request to the king. To say, hey, hey, your, your daddy, he was pretty oppressive to us. We want you to relent. So they were, they were taking a bold step. And I think the old guys knew that there was a little bit of pride and arrogance in Rehoboam, and they knew they needed to appeal to his pride a little bit. And they said, look, we know they're kind of staking, they're, they're stepping out of bounds asking you this question. We know they're, they're getting real close to, to that line they shouldn't cross. But you as a leader, if you want to be a great leader, you need to extend grace to them in this moment. And, and do that by... Becoming a king that serves the people, that serves the needs of the people, that serves the wants and desires of the people. Because if you do that in return, they will follow you forever. Now, from the outside view looking in, that seems like pretty solid advice. That would be what any king would want, is for his people to willingly follow him forever, you know, and for his kingdom to be successful and fruitful. In fact, there's a, a fairly famous king uh, that also kind of lived by that same rule. You, maybe you've heard of him. His name is Jesus. You know, in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said he came to not be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And as, as a result of him coming to serve people, when people, you know, he's had thousands and millions of people put their faith in him and follow him forever. So the old men give what I would say would be very sound advice. But as we make our way through the text, you see that the king obviously has no interest into listening to these men that served under his father. His pride and arrogance in his spirit starts to kind of show its ugly head. The fact that he's out to prove himself better than his father begins to, to reveal itself. 
You know, keep in mind, too, that there is a very good possibility that Rehoboam had to know about the prophecy against him, that, that God was going to remove the kingdom from him. So either he is just blatantly not believing a thing God says. Maybe he thinks, well, at this point, he doesn't think Jeroboam's dead because he just spoke to him. But he has no interest. He's not acknowledging God's prophecy against him whatsoever. But so what does he do? Instead of heeding the advice of these old men, he goes to his buddies. The guys that probably grew up with him in the royal court, the guys that we would probably consider yes men, the guys that are just going to tell him what he wants to hear. You know, because if they tell him what he doesn't want to hear, then they're going to probably get kicked out of that royal court and, and not get all the, the free stuff and the life of luxury. They'll probably have to get a job for a living and, and do all these things. So they're going to tell him whatever the king wa- wants to hear to make sure they stay in that royal court. You know, it's never good. We, we, when we are seeking wisdom, we need to have some people that love us enough to tell us no, right? We need to have those people that are going to tell us no. You, know, you read stories all the time of people that made millions and millions of dollars in the NFL and other sports leagues, and they get out and they have nothing because they had nobody in their life telling them, don't spend your money on that. Don't spend your money on that. Don't give it to that. And they get out and people have stole all their money out from under them and they have not a nickel to their name. And you wonder, how did somebody do that? They needed somebody that was willing to tell them no, willing them to tell, tell them the truth, not just what they wanted to hear. See, for us as followers of Christ, we need those people around us that are going to love us. They're going to impart wisdom. We need that mixture of people that are in our own age bracket and those people that have a little bit of gray hair to impart some wisdom that have been there and done that. Uh, you know, because we don't know everything. But not only that, we have to be able to receive it when we hear something we don't like. It may, you know, we don't always like truth when we hear it, right? We don't like to receive it. But if, if we want wisdom, wise counsel to work in our life, not only do we need to be able to hear it and have people that are going to speak it to us, but we've got to receive it. We've got to receive it with a welcome heart. We've got to be able to have this willingness about us to take it and apply it and adhere to it. And we see that Rehoboam has no interest in that whatsoever. I want, you, I want us to read, you know, kind of how the, the, it goes in verse 10 and 11. In verse 10 it says, And the young men who had grown up with him and said to him, Thus that shall you speak to this people, who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs, and now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke, My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Just a couple things to clarify some things in that statement. So number one, they're not talking about real scorpions. It's really just this other kind of vicious type of whip. Uh, Probably very similar to the one they used on Jesus whenever he went to the cross. Would have had like little things attached to it. It was designed really to inflict way more pain. So he said, I'm going to increase the punishment... It's going to be, the punishment for not serving me is going to be way greater than what my father inflicted on you for disobedience. And then this, this other thing, this my little finger is, is bigger than your thigh. Um, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are R-rated. And there's kids in the room. So I, I debated, I think it's important that we know, because it gives us a better picture of who Rehoboam is, but uh, he's not talking about a thigh and he's not talking about a finger. 
Uh, if you really want to understand what that is, you can come see me later. But he's really just trying to display that his manhood is bigger than his dad's manhood and that he is a far better man than his dad ever was. And he wants to make sure that people know that. So uh, if you didn't connect those dots, come see me later because there's kids in the room and, and that's we're trying to keep it PG. But so he's there's and, and, and Rehoboam is buying into this man. They are feeding his ego. They are building him up. He's like, yes, yes, I'm going to go tell these people that I'm going to make them know I'm bigger, badder than my dad ever was. And they're going to regret the day they came and asked this of me to do this thing. So he makes the decision to go and oppress the people more, establish himself more powerful than his father. And he's going to do that through the way of more forced labor, more taxes, more oppression. So instead of choosing the route of extending grace and extending a servant's heart to his people, he chooses pride, power, arrogance, ego. And we're going to see how that goes for him in just a moment as we work through verses 12 through 20. So Rehoboam, the people gather together like he said in three days. They gather back at Shechem. As you can probably imagine, when he told them what his buddies told them to tell the people, they did not receive it very well. Just imagine how you would receive a comment like that. Because it was, not, it, it was probably not the PG version that he told them. It was the rated R version that he boldly told to his people. And the people, they don't take it very well. Uh, see, Rehoboam was so prideful that he thought all he would have to do is send his little taskmaster to go and just enforce these new laws on these people. And when the taskmaster showed up, the people stoned him to death. Rehoboam gets scared, he gets on his little chariot, and he flees town. And this, and this is the point where Israel becomes a divided nation. Jeroboam is made king over about ten tribes of Israel. And then the remnant, the tribe of Judah, some of the tribe of Benjamin, and some of the faithful followers of a few of the other tribes, they go with Rehoboam. Um, it was hard to find some, some super exact numbers, but, but basically we see that, that God is fulfilling his promises here. He's filling his promise to pass judgment and punishment on Solomon for his sin, but he's also keeping the covenant that he made with David to make sure that there is a remnant of his kingdom in the lineage of Israel and somebody from his lineage will remain in power until the day the Messiah would come. And to this day, Israel is divided, and most think that, you know, uh, that it will not be a united Israel until the day that, that Jesus returns. But just know that, you know, that's, that's going to happen. You know, if Jesus says it's going to happen, it's going to happen because these other things they said would happen, happen. So that's just, that's one of the things to keep in mind about prophecy is like if God said it, it's going to happen. And there's story after story after story in Scripture of God saying something and happening. So all those future events that are talked about in Scripture are going to happen if they haven't happened yet. And just, that's just something that we tend to forget because it's, it seems so foreign, so distant to us. But as we work through that, it's important for us to understand that, you know, this shows, again, that God is a sovereign God, that he is in control of all things, that he controls kings and nations. God is the author of history, that nothing happens that God does not allow. Now, that doesn't mean he approves of everything that happens in Scripture. This got brought up in our small group the other night. You know, Solomon had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. That doesn't mean God approved of that. You know, many of the people we talk about in Scripture had, David had several wives. That doesn't mean God condones that. It's just, it's telling, real, you know, he's not sugarcoating how these people lived in Scripture. So just because things happen in the Bible does not mean God condones it. He's just giving us the picture of real people in real life. 
But it's also important for us to keep that in mind that, that there is no nation, no leader, no person outside of God's sovereign will. What God wants to happen is going to happen regardless of what we choose to do. That he is a, a promise maker and a promise keeper. The truths about God, these truths that he is a promise keeper and a promise maker, should encourage us as we move forward, especially in light of the events that are going on in our world, that, that, Jesus, that, that God is still in control of all things, that even though it seems chaotic here, that everything is working for his good and his glory, and that he is fulfilling his promises, that he has not left us or forsaken us, that he still sits on the throne, that he still is orchestrating all things behind the scenes. Then as we, as we finish out our text this morning in the last three verses, Rehoboam finally gets a little bit of a clue and he gathers his troops in verse 21 and he says, I'm going to go regain my kingdom. And then God sends another prophet of the Lord and he says, look, hey, you had your chance. You're done. He's like, I organized this division. It's going to happen. There's no point in you trying to go take relative against relative. No, no reason for you to go and have bloodshed. And for the first time in this story, Rehoboam actually listens to some instructions that God has given. This is, this is the first time we see him show any type of obedience to God. You know, but I can't help but think, if Rehoboam would have submitted to the wisdom of the old men, there was plenty of accounts in the Old Testament where God had, had said he was going to punish people in this way. And then they came with a humble heart, a servant's heart, and they repented of their sins, and they turned away, and they just laid themselves before the Lord, and he relented of the punishment that he was going to give them. So it just makes me wonder if, if Rehoboam would have came with that spirit of grace and servant's heart and humility, if maybe God would have changed things up a little bit, maybe not divided Israel at that point. Who knows? It just makes me wonder if, if he would have, it would not have been something new for God to have done that all of a sudden because there's examples in Scripture of him relenting time and time again. So that's a great story. That's a great, uh, you know, getting us one step closer to the coming Messiah. But I want to talk about how that, that it, it relates to us here today, you know, thousands of years past when this happened. So we know that, that all this happened... Because God ordained it. Because God is sovereign. He orchestrates things for his will. That this division was ultimately because of God. But I want us to just really look at the tools at which God used to divide the kingdom of Israel. He used pride, arrogance, the desire for power to divide the kingdom. These were the devices that he chose to use. And if we were to examine many of the divisions that exist in, in the, both the church today and the world today, that, that, that pride and arrogance can be traced back to the root of many of the divisions that are existent today. You know, think about back in the early days of this country when, when people owned slaves. If you boiled that evil down to its core... It was essentially the pride of another individual that said, I am better than this person. I am worth more than this person. That pride and arrogance of that person said, I am worth more to the point where I can own this person as my property. That's pride and arrogance that causes us to think in that nature. And 
And it's that mindset, that, that pride, that arrogance, that, that pursuit of power over another person that, causes, that has caused division that has remained in our country today. Listen to what Jude 1.19 says regarding division. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Christians, disciples of Christ, should not be the source of division. In our community, in the church itself, in our homes, the division, that, that, the division is an indicator of someone who is devoid of the Holy Spirit. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, if you claim to be a disciple, and you've been sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit, division should not be in your nature. You should, be not, you should not be the one stirring things up, dividing one another. Yet how many churches have division amongst themselves today? Over things like the color of the carpets or what style of worship they should do. Heck, just look at denominations. You know, the church as a whole is everybody that claims the name of Jesus, that is a follower of Christ. That is, that is God's church. And then we have our local bodies. But the question was proposed to me one time, say, how can you as a Christian promote unity when you guys can't even agree amongst yourselves on who does church right? I said, that is a very valid question. And I really, I don't, know, I don't know how to really answer that other than we need to do better. Because, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if y'all know it. Uh, pastor Thomas was a Pentecostal pastor that was here last week. And Baptists and Pentecostals don't normally hang out together. So that was a big deal that he was here. That was a God deal that he was here. You know, but there's, there's I, I don't know what the answer is to unite churches like that. But that is a very good question for us to think about as we live our lives. Is how can we promote unity in our community if the church is divided amongst itself? You know, I just want you to think about it. I'm, I'm sure if you think about it, you know, what is it, uh, Westboro Baptist Church or whatever, that goes around and protests, you know, soldiers returning. They, they protest everything under the sun, you know, and claim to be followers of Christ, but that's not what they should be doing as Christians. If truly are followers of Christ, all they are is going up and stirring up division and hate amongst people. That's not what we're called to do. You know, Paul even says in Romans 16 that we are to avoid those that cause divisions. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul calls the church to have no divisions, but be united as the church. Hey, there's kids in church, guys, in case y'all didn't know. There's kids in church, and it's okay. How can we as the church be peacemakers in our community? If we're not united amongst ourselves, if there's not peace in the church. If you've, if you've ventured into the Pace campus over the years, you've heard Pastor Norman say that we don't do stupid. We don't do stupid things at this church. That means we're not going to argue over things like carpet. You know, that's why if you've ever been to the Pace campus, they've never put carpet down because they don't want a chance for anything to happen about arguing over carpet. But really what that means, not doing stupid, is, is we're not going to do anything that's going to let the devil have a foothold in this church. We're going to do everything we can to preserve unity in the body of Christ, to be an example for the rest of the community. So that means that, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to be straight up with you. If you stay here long enough, somebody's going to hurt your feelings. I may hurt your feelings. I may say something you don't like. Somebody else may say something that you don't like that you don't agree with. The church is filled with people. The church would be perfect if nobody was in it. Y'all got that? But it's be filled with imperfect people that say stupid things, do stupid things, that don't think before they say. So there's going to be mistakes. 
So I encourage you now, at the beginning of all this, if that ever happens, if you get mad, upset with somebody, go to that person and talk to them about it. That's what scripture teaches us to do anyways. Go deal with that person about what you're mad or angry about. Because nine times out of ten, it's just a misunderstanding. Nobody was intentionally out to get you. And for that other kind of 1% or 10%, it's usually something that can be worked out simply by discussing. It's just a different point of view on something. So that's what we mean. We're not going to do stupid at this church. We're not going to let little things like that, little things that can turn into big things with gossiping and things like that. We're not going to let that happen here. We're going to be a unifying church. So I encourage you to more than make that happen. If those things happen when you get your feelings hurt, don't, don't just pack up and leave, you know. Uh, I mean, Walmart does you wrong all the time and you go back there, don't you? Uh, you, might, you might skip a couple times, but you go back eventually. They mess up your, your grocery order, but you go back. I do it all the time. They mess it over up all the time, but I go back. See, one of, one of the amazing things about Christ is that he has the power to take people of all backgrounds, abilities, ethnicities, and unite them in the power of the gospel. Jesus can unite people like nobody else can. That's how we, you know, and, and we are going to... That doesn't mean... United does not mean we're going to agree on every single thing, but our common ground is Jesus and we can build out from there. Because we're people that come from different backgrounds, we think differently, we're raised differently, but if we are united in Christ, we have the power and the ability to work through those and be united as a church to go out and be peacemakers in our communities. So how exactly is that done? How do we become peacemakers and unifiers in the community? Just as the old men advised. Extend grace to one another and serve one another, and they will follow. By serving those who don't deserve it, just like Jesus did for us, even though we were sinners, he died for us anyways. As believers, Jesus is the model of how we are to live, and he said to himself, he came to serve and not be served. His actions backed up that claim. Jesus came, he served the rich, the poor, the least of these, the sick, those, caused, those caught in sin, and he did not serve conditionally, but he served others always. He did not serve conditionally, but he served others always. And he caused a pretty big stir. People took notice, not so, I mean, they, they noticed what Jesus said, but when he acted out, when he served people, it got things stirred up in the city that he was in. People took notice when he was there eating dinner with sinners, when he was healing the sick on the Sabbath. People took notice to Jesus' actions. How he served people, how he extended grace, how he washed the feet of the disciples. And this is how we should approach church. This is how we should approach our walk with Christ. If we are committed to extending grace and serving others, it lessens the chance for pride and arrogance to creep in and cause division in the church and in our personal lives. It, it keeps Satan from being able to have that footing in your life and in the church if we are constantly pursuing grace and, and, and serving other people. If you're a follower of Christ, you should come to church. You should come in this building... Not with the mindset of what the church can do for me, but uh, how can I worship God today? How can I glorify Him? How can I, how can I serve Him by serving those around me today when I come and worship God? 
We should approach our daily lives asking these questions of how can I serve my neighbor? How can I serve my spouse today? How can I serve that person that doesn't know Christ today or that hates me or that doesn't like me? How can I serve that person that believes differently than me? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, this is what Peter says. He says, As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has given each of us unique giftings, passions, abilities, and we are used that not to be division causers in the community, but unifiers for God's glory, for God's praise, for God's worship, and not our own pride, not our own glory, not our own power, not our own successes, but for the glory of God. And when we do that, people take notice. When you are a serving church, when you are a serving person, people are going to ask you the question, why did you do that? And you respond, Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Whereas if you are out stirring up division, you are not bringing glory to God. If our hearts are drawn towards creating division, then we need to check ourselves, especially if you claim to be a follower of Christ. Because being a division causer is not a characteristic of someone who is filled and led by the Holy Spirit of God. So we... We're going to close in just a minute as Danny comes up, but we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, I heard about another church that was doing this in another part of the state, and I thought it was a great idea for us, given the circumstances, and maybe something we continue to do weekly, monthly, or whatever. But, you know, I want us, this Wednesday, for 24 hours, I want us to fast and pray. Now, the temptation in fasting and prayer is we tend to focus on why we're doing it or on the fact that we're giving something up. You know, uh, but for us, I want the focus to be on the what. So for those of you who may not be familiar with fasting, you know, I love the way Pastor Joby Martin puts it. He says, fasting is telling your flesh no to make room to hear from Jesus. And that's all we're going to do on Wednesday for that 24 hours. You're going to fast from food, coffee, social media, whatever. You've got two days to figure it out, pray about it, see what God wants you to fast from. But we're not going to... I don't want you to fast about the why of why everything is going on in the world today or you know, fat, you know, have that in the back of your mind that you're giving something up. But I want you to fast and pray towards the what. What is it God wants you to do, wants us to do as a church in response to everything that's going on in, in, in our daily lives? How can we minister best and be the church, be the peacemakers and unifiers in the world today and give God the glory? So y'all track with me, y'all understand what we want to do. We want to, this Wednesday, we're going to be united in prayer and fasting that God reveal to us the what. What is it he wants each of us to do? How does he want us to use our giftings for his glory in light of everything that's going on? What does he want us to do as a church, as a whole, in ministering to this community and the surrounding communities? How do we respond properly to things that are going on? And we want to hear about it. If, you, if God speaks to you this week, man, we want you to, to hit us up. Let us know about it. Let us know on social media. Text me, email me, call us, whatever you need to do. And by all means, if God says, I want you to fast another day, do it. It's okay. You're not going to get in trouble if God tells you to do that or you choose to do that. 
But I think this would be a great opportunity for us to unite as a church and get some direction in our individual lives and as a church on what God wants us to do. And it's a great time for us to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us in this. And hopefully it's going to lead to some great and amazing things. But as the church, we should be running towards the injustices and oppressions of this world with the gospel and a servant's heart. Not shielding ourselves or hiding away or disengaging from reality and pretending it's not going on, but rather we should be pressing in, praying for God to show us the what. What is it you want us to do? How do you want us to serve God? How can we love those that are practicing these injustices and oppressions? How can we love those that are experiencing the injustice and the oppressions? Because change, true change, is only going to happen when the transforming power of Jesus is entered into the equation. And in order for that to happen, the people of God have to get out there and share the gospel, share the love of Christ, because people have to hear it before they're going to believe it. And if God's people hide themselves away, avoid the hard things of this world, how are people supposed to hear? How is the Great Commission supposed to be fulfilled if we sit silent and do nothing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this day, God. I thank you, God, that we, you have allowed us to be a part of your story. You have allowed us to serve with you. You have allowed us to just experience you, God. And I pray that as we go throughout this week, Father God, that you would show us exactly what that what is. How do we respond? How do we make meaningful impacts in the world around us, God? And I pray that as you spoke maybe differently to every heart in this room today, God, I pray that they would respond this morning, whether that's in salvation, maybe that's in just baptism, a next step, whatever, God, I pray that they would not leave this room without responding to you today, God, and we just surrender this to you, we praise you, son, in Jesus' name, amen.